0: We've been met. My name's Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here. We're um, in a series on the book of 1 Timothy called uh, uh, Community Worth Fighting For, which I think is a great name for the series because um, the book's all about community and church community and how to do that well. Um, how about we pray as we, uh, we get stuck into it this morning that God would help us. Loving Heavenly Father, please help us to listen intently to your word this morning. I pray that as a result of listening well, Uh, we'd be better uh, fit and better suited to serve the Lord Jesus this morning. Amen. Um, I'm going to open my Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, it would be a good thing to have open as well. Um, And I want to read that bit at the end again because uh, it's always worth noticing when a a, a book of the Bible tells you what the point of the book is. And the passage we read this morning told us what the point of the book is. Uh, Have a look at the end of chapter 3. It tells us... uh, the Apostle Paul's writing to his uh, colleague in ministry, Timothy, his apprentice, you might say, um, and he's telling him uh, what he should do in a church called Ephesus where he's sorting some, some uh, bad business out, basically. Um, verse 14 to uh, 15 tell us the purpose, what Christians are supposed to get out of reading this letter. It says uh, to Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The letter's supposed to tell us how to be church, and specifically how to be church as household, how to be the household of God. Now, it's a picture I want you to have in your head, so I'll put it in on the screen straight away. This is how we're supposed to envisage church in 1 Timothy, right? These are a bunch of households, all different households. You've got some uh, uh, households with kids, I, don't, I feel a bit worried about that household that's got three teenagers in it. But at least they've got the Bible open, right? Because that's what makes it a Christian household. We're living as a house under the rule of the Lord Jesus. Have lots of different sorts of relationships in different households. Here's what the, the kind of analogy that the book of Timothy is making about how church works. Uh, those are Christian households. The household of God, the church, is a household of those households. They kind of, they, they join together. It's got the same structure, Um, so the smaller households uh, come together and they're the household of God. And he's saying, I want you to know how the household of God is supposed to uh, relate to each other. It's how it's supposed to behave, how it's supposed to look. That's what the book's about, largely. Um, But that's not all he says. He says this really strange thing at the end of verse 15. He says, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And you hear that and you might go, come on, I'm a Bible-believing person. I think the pillar and foundation of the truth is the Bible, or Jesus, or not the church. Well... Where do you come to find about Jesus? Where do you find people who take the Bible seriously? See, God has given us his words so that people could know him. Where on earth will you find people who understand who Jesus is, who have taken the Bible seriously enough to try to understand it? Well, it's got to be God's church. That's his point. In any community, we've got to hope and pray that the local church is the pillar and foundation of God's truth in that community. And that's what we've got to hope for New Life Anglican Church in Oran Park. Because if we aren't listening to God, if we aren't presenting the truth of God to other people in Oren Park, we must expect that nobody else will be. That's what he's getting at. That's a pretty big responsibility, isn't it? I, ho- I hope you read that and notice that. Uh, you- you're-, you're a Christian person. That's our responsibility together. Um, and then he quotes this hymn. It's wonderful. Um, we should put music together for, for it because it's really good. Uh, it seems to be a hymn they all know the tune to. And he's saying, because at the foundation of what the church is about are all these truths about Jesus. And so he says in verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery, it just means the secret, the secret from which godliness springs is great. And he talks, sings a song that's mainly about Jesus and, and, and things about Jesus. And they're all secrets about Jesus. That is, they're things that nobody would have ever guessed in history that were true until it actually happened, and then people were amazed and go, wow, God's done this through Jesus. I I never would have seen that coming. Let's just just go through what the song says. Um, Phrase by phrase, it says, he appeared in the flesh. Friends, I hope you never stop being amazed that God's son became a person of the same species that you are so that he could save you. Isn't that astonishing? If that's normal to you, come on, think about it again the same species as you, facing the same temptations and trials as you. That's astonishing. He appeared in the flesh. He became a human being. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That's kind of a strange phrase. A couple of options for it. Here's what I think it means. It's talking about when Jesus rose from the dead because people didn't see that coming. What does it mean he was vindicated? It means that He was proved to be in the right. He was proved to be righteous in God's sight by his resurrection. You see, we know that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how would people remember him? The way people would remember him is God hated him, is how people would have remembered it. Because what it means to be crucified is they are cursed by God. lasting memory of Jesus would be Jesus is accursed. But he was proved not to be accursed by God, at least not lastingly, God's final verdict on Jesus was this guy deserves eternal life, so I'm going to give it to him. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. He was vindicated. He was proven to be in the right. And so you see, I'll show a couple of verses because we don't talk about it very much. So at the beginning of Romans it says, Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. See, the Holy Spirit, uh, the resurrection is the way the Holy Spirit appoints Jesus to be the son of God in power. He's the king forever because he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And he received from God the verdict that he deserved. And then there's this strange bit in 1 Corinthians 12 that I want to point out to you because I think it's a wonderful summary. You've been puzzled by this. It says, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we all read that and go, yes, they can. <laughs> they can speak those words. What it's saying is they can't hold that opinion unless they've got the Spirit of God because the first one means, I think Jesus died and stayed dead is under God's judgment forever. Jesus is accursed. No Christian can believe that because what Christians believe is he didn't stay cursed, he rose from the dead, God vindicated, him, improved him to be righteous and made him the Lord of all things. That's a Christian opinion. That's, that's the foundation of Christianity. Jesus is Lord, the risen Lord, Jesus. So that's what that second one there's about. Uh, let's just shoot through them. Um, third one, it says, seen by angels. Now the word angel there uh, literally is the word Messenger. And so you're supposed to think, is it like a human messenger or is it the supernatural kind? Because they both exist, right? Um, The apostles and um, other people saw Jesus after his resurrection and were his eyewitnesses, his messengers. Um, And I think that's what this is talking about here, but it's ambiguous, so it could be either. See how it fits into the logic of it, though. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by messengers. Verse 3, sorry, the the next phrase, was preached among the nations. The message of Jesus went out among people, Jew and Gentile alike. So, third, the the, the next one, he was believed on in the world. Friends, we need to speak of Jesus clearly in Oran Park, and we have here people believe in Jesus when when he's proclaimed in the world. You know, it's just a basic point. There will be people because we tell them about Jesus who will go, "I want to jump on board with Jesus." It's not just we're speaking in vain. He was believed on the world and we can expect people to come to faith in Jesus as we speak clearly about him. And so as people come to know that Jesus is Lord, uh, it's, it just sums up, it's not kind of in the order of Jesus' life, but it says he was taken up in glory, he, was, he ascended into heaven and now he's the Lord of all things. I think it's a pretty good song, we should put that to music. Friends, I hope those truths we just went through are really precious to you, by the way. Um, if you're a Christian, that, that's foundational stuff, isn't it? Jesus became a man, he he rose from the dead, he was seen by his messengers, he was preached, he's believed on, he's the king of everything in heaven. It's foundational stuff to our faith, it's really important. This is pillar and foundation stuff that we need to stand up for. Um, But as we live as a household of God, we don't just need to believe the right things, we also need to do church the right way, do church community the right way. And that's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 is mainly about. Mainly it's about... Um, appointing the right kinds of people to positions of service and leadership in the church. Positions of service and leadership. Now, I, I want to give you a, um, a question on the screen for you to look at and think about for a minute. It might seem a bit strange, but here we go. Uh, is tradition a dirty word? Um, I'll, I'll explain a bit, so you might, you might be confused. What on earth are you talking about, Matthew? What I mean is, I'm a Bible-believing person. I hope you're a Bible-believing person too. Uh, I think if the Bible doesn't teach it, I can't expect people to believe it (laughs) uh, and to hold to it stringently because it's God's word, the Bible. And so tradition for a lot of people stands for the stuff that mere human beings made up and kind of added, yeah? And so is tradition a dirty word? Just think about it for a moment. I think if your answer is yes, a strong yes, you're going to struggle with the rest of the sermon. Uh... Because uh, tradition isn't a dirty word, and we need to be very careful here. Um, Friends, to be a human being is to have traditions. You have traditions. New Life Anglican Church has traditions. Every church denomination has traditions, whether they admit it or not. Uh, Even a church, say it was starting this very Sunday, did church for the first time today, they already have traditions before they've started. Because those people have customs and roles and systems and patterns of speech and patterns of engaging with God and with each other that don't directly come from the Bible. It's not a dirty word to say people have traditions. The issue is, uh, do our traditions add or change the content of the Bible? On the one hand, that's bad. Add or change the content of the Bible, right? The good version is whether our traditions are in step with the Bible's teaching. Do our traditions conform to the principles that the Bible teaches for conducting church life? Now, I need to start it that way because the Anglican Church is a Bible-believing church. Uh, even the ones that don't really believe the Bible, their statement of faith says they believe the Bible. So I want to call them to account, frankly. Um, but the Anglican Church is also a traditional church. We have uh, structures of leadership that do not come from the Bible. They don't. It's not, we don't have a system that comes straight out of the Bible because no church does. The Bible doesn't actually um, explain a developed, structured model about how to do church leadership and what all the offices are and how they relate to each other. It doesn't give that kind of detail. What it does give are absolutely crucial principles of Christian leadership and it outlines two kinds of ministry roles that we're going to talk about today uh, and, and what they're about. The two types of roles, um, I'll tell you, they'll be on the screen in a minute. The first one has lots of words for the same role, okay? Here's the words. Elder, pastor, overseer, and teacher overlaps, but it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, elder, pastor, overseer. Not all teachers are pastors, but all pastors are teachers. Um, elder pastor overseer teacher you could remember it by the acronym potty I don't like potty I've got ePOT on my page but anyway Um, so there's elder pastor teacher uh, elder pastor overseer teacher roles um, and there's deacon type roles and in practice a lot of roles in church are kind of a combination of both Um, what I want to say though is I think God hasn't spelt this out for us because he's given us brains so we can assess the kind of culture we live in the heritage we have He's given us His Spirit, and He's given wisdom by His Spirit, so we can organise, plan, and structure things in a way that suit our situation. So every church has traditions. It's not a bad thing. Uh, the question is, how well do they conform to the principles that the Bible teaches? Let me tell you about the tradition of the Anglican Church. Here's a kind of crash course in Anglicanism. Uh, the Anglican Church has some ordained roles to ministry. Here's the three, threefold structure of ordination in the Anglican Church, and it's a hierarchical structure. So at the the beginning of being um, ordained, you're a deacon and you can become a presbyter and they might become a bishop is is kind of the the logic there. All of these roles are Bible-in-hand roles or Bible-speaking roles. None of them are just administrators. That's really important to Anglicanism. They're all people who stand for the truth of the gospel and teach and do some other things as well. Um, Incidentally, um, this threefold thing, bishop, a bit of Deacon, do you know how old that is? Um, I think it changes how you think about this tradition. Um, this book of 1 Timothy was written in the 60s, right? In '60s, 0060s. Um, 1960s, or well, the 260s, yeah, the 0060s. Um, this structure of leadership existed in the 90s, 30 years after Paul wrote this letter. In fact, I have a book here you, will, you can look at it if you want. Uh, it's called The Apostolic Fathers. The reason it's called The Apostolic Fathers is it's a bunch of guys who wrote letters um, to churches, such as the church at Ephesus, that this one's about, um, and they're called Apostolic Fathers because a lot of them sat at the feet of the apostles and learned from them. That's the second-generation Christians. Um, and so a guy called Ignatius of Antioch um, wrote a letter to this same church 30 years later, and he talked about bishops, presbyters, deacons. He's got this developed structure that isn't the Bible structure. It's just worth noting... It's just practical questions, right? You can't be a church for very long without going, how are we going to structure things? How are we going to do ministry on the ground? And so very quickly, they were forced to make up some structures that tried to conform to the Bible. It's just really practical questions. Anyway, um, in the Diocese of Sydney, we've we've got this this structure here. Um, Let me tell you about what's what. Um, Deacons are are men and women who are ordained, uh, officially appointed, that means, um, to the role of deacon means they're judged to be suitable for full-time, lifelong vocational ministries. They're full-time job. They're usually three to four years trained and they usually take up kind of assistant pastor jobs or that kind of level of job under the leadership and supervision of uh, presbyter or the church local church rector. Um, so Stuart is the local church rector here, if you didn't know. Stuart is, the pre- is a presbyter to do that. Um, and they can teach the Bible in various contexts, do weddings, funerals, baptisms, that sort of thing. Presbyter is the second one. Now, Um, Only men are able to become presbyters in Sydney. Why? Well, you need to listen to the sermon last week that Stuart gave. is a a big part of the reason for that, also this present passage. Um, In Anglicanism, presbyters are experienced deacons who are then ordained a second time to the role of rector of an Anglican church. So their primary role is to lead the church and take charge uh, in in a variety of ways of a local church. And then at the top there, we've got the bishop, who is in charge of a region and overseas ordaining, that is appointing people to these other roles that are, that are underneath and making sure that local churches uh, work well. Um, I think there's a lot of good things to say about this model. I'm sure you can throw some criticisms at it too. It's not perfect. It's a model. And I think it's got some good things in it. It's got accountability in it. It's got assessment for suitability in it. They're really, really good things. Um, let me give you a human face to it. Um, so in 2009, this gentleman here, Stuart Starr, became a deacon in order so he could continue in the ministry of fig-, fig Tree Anglican Church as a deacon under the leadership of the then rector. I don't know who was the rector in 2009, but that doesn't matter. Um, and you're going, who's that little girl there? Oh, you can't see it very well on the screen. It's Ruby when she was like two, and she looks unhappy on that day. Um, four years later, New Life Anglican Church decided to become a parish, which means we needed the pastor in charge to be ordained a second time to become a presbyter so that he was officially appointed to that kind of role. So Stuart was ordained uh, late last year to the role of presbyter, which means now that this Anglican church is an official Anglican church, a parish, um, Stuart can be in charge of it. So that, that's really good news. He, was, he went through a process to do that and they judged him suitable and we're thankful for that. Um, I just want to point out, though, you know, by this um, kind of trajectory of time, Stuart will be a bishop in 2017. <laughs> Um, so, we look forward to seeing the photo for that in a few years' time. And I'll, I'll warn Peter Haywood next time I see him that his job's threatened in the next few years. I love you too, much. Yeah, <laughs> Peter's a very good bishop, I think. Um, and, and we like Stuart to be here. Uh, <laughs> friends, this isn't the sum of it, though. Anglican mm. churches actually have lay roles as well, which means not ordained, like not officially appointed at, at that kind of ordination uh, by the bishop kind of kind of level. Here's some of the roles we've got. We've got wardens. Those wardens are holding keys because they're in charge of property and finances. There's parish council. They're kind of in charge administratively as a council. That's why they're holding clipboards. But then you've got lots of roles in Anglican churches, or all churches really. We start appointing people to be ministry team leaders. And you just go, well, we're looking at a passage here. It mentions overseers and it mentions deacons. And you go, okay, so I've got a person who's in charge of youth group or in charge of kids' ministry, or is in charge of music. and What's this have to say to that kind of role? There's all sorts of roles you can just make up as the, as the need arises, uh, and we need to do that. And we like to make it extra complicated at New Life Anglican Church, so we'd like to say that the teaching of this passage has a lot to do with being a New Life Anglican Church partner as well. We made up our own category of things, because we were basically uh, partners are people who have signed up and just said, you know, we really like this church, and we want to serve Jesus with you here. And so we, that's just a formalisation of that kind of thing. just means you've got a new life uh, tattoo on your chest by the look of it, its a bit, bit scary, or maybe just a tree in your coffee table, which is probably more appropriate. Uh, friends, what I, what I want to say is, what this passage has to say speaks to all of those roles. In fact, it speaks beyond those roles as well. Did you see how this list, we read it, and it just gives a list of things that the, the elders and the, the, the overseers, sorry, and the deacons have to be, the sort of person they need to be? Now... Here's the thing, every single one of those things, except for the ability to teach, is elsewhere expected of all Christians in the Bible. Every single one except the ability to teach. When you read this, don't read, oh, we've got a high, high bar for our leaders, don't we? Read, this is what God expects of me as a Christian, because it's just normal Christianity. These people need to be example Christians, is all it's really saying, and it's got a couple of abilities and, and things they need to have, basically the uh, elder pastor-overseer teacher needs to be able to teach is the, is the big difference. Because, friends, every single Christian is a minister. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you're a minister. Start using the word if it helps you. I'm a minister of Jesus. It just means servant. That's what the passage we read from Mark me, uh, was all about. Jesus told his people, if you're going to follow me, you're a servant. Uh, Mark chapter 10.42. Um, you don't need to flick to it. I'll read it. Just have a listen. Jesus called them together and he said... You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He's uh, just saying you're a minister. Servant just means minister. Uh, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. All Christian ministry is that. There's different forms of it there might be roles that mean being in charge of something but it's still being a slave of Jesus it's still being the servant of Jesus and of other people now you've got your bible passage there chapter three it says uh, chapter three one to seven it says whoever aspires to the task to be an overseer there's one role verse eight says in the same way deacons so it's got two roles there Uh, those words are used here on the, on the page for ordained roles. Presbyter is, uh, sorry, bishop is the, the traditional word for overseer in the Anglican Church, and, and deacon is there, obviously. Let me confuse you further before I hopefully bring things together and make it make sense. Um, here's what I want to say. When the Bible says overseer, it doesn't mean bishop. Bishop is a type of overseer, you could say. I'm going I'm to say in the end but uh, traditionally they've been taken as the same thing, but it's it's not what it means. It's not saying whoever desires to be a bishop desires a noble task. A bishop is a traditional role that that we use in the Anglican Church. Presbyter doesn't equal elder, pastor, overseer, teacher, although there's a massive overlap between those things. What I do want to say is uh, the presbyter, the ordained role in the Anglican Church, is much more specific than the elder, pastor, overseer, teacher in the Bible. That's a broader thing. So I'm not a presbyter, but according to the Bible, I am. The way the Bible uses the word, I am a presbyter. Stuart became a presbyter at the end of last year. As far as the Bible's use of the word was, he was already a presbyter beforehand in a different sense. People use words in different ways. This is why it's so confusing. Um, deacon, as the Anglican Church uses it, doesn't equal exactly the deacon in the Bible. Again, the Anglican Church is trying to say something far more specific about that particular role. It basically just means servant, the word deacon. In fact, that's exactly what it means. Um, but it's talking about a particular type of service that they traditionally called the deacon. Um, We need to get very comfortable with people using words in different ways and the fact that we all have traditions that we bring to these things because otherwise we won't be able to think clearly about it. Um, So we come to the Bible. That's all we've got. There's elder, pastor, overseer, teacher, and there's deacons or servants. Okay? Now, here's the hard work. In order to apply the teaching of this kind of passage to our church and other churches, whatever structure you've got, you need to ask the question, which types of roles are the elder pastor-overseer teacher-type roles and which types of roles are the deacon-type roles and perhaps which ones are kind of a combination of the two? If you're going to think clearly about it, you need to basically ask that question. And there's good reasons for doing that. Here's one reason. I think when you ask somebody to do a role, I think you want to be very clear what God expects of them. I want to be able to say to somebody, you know what, we're going to put you in charge of this ministry and we regard that as a deacon role in this church. So please read that part of the Bible and tell us how you're going with that because that's what God expects of you. See, just, just to be clear. Um, it's also important because of uh, the, the specific roles, uh, gender roles that God gives in his church. So last week somebody asked the excellent question after Stuart's sermon on, on 1 Timothy chapter 2, which roles in our church should women engage in in the church service and in the church community? And basically... That comes down to which roles are elder pastor-overseer teacher roles and which ones are of the deacon-servant type roles. That's, that's how you answer that kind of question, basically. Um, neither type of role is open to just anybody, um, which is what this passage is about. Now, have a look at uh, chapter 3 there, and we'll get into some of the things it says. Again, uh, a lot of it is just normal Christian conduct. Listen to what he says. Uh, we'll just skip through a few things. He says it needs to be above reproach. It means people can't legitimately, verse 2, can't legitimately accuse you of stuff because you you've got a good reputation and you're protecting yourself against allegations by the way you behave. Um, temperate, which uh, basically means clear and sober-minded. I'll come back to Faithful Lou's wife, not because it's unimportant, because it's very important. Uh, <laughs> temperate, clear and sober-minded, they're not erratic or irrational. Uh, hospitable. The norm of generously giving to others, opening your home to others and particularly strangers. Not a drunk, gentle, not harsh in the way they relate to others. Not quarrelsome, watch out for potential leaders who love arguments for their own sake. That's what it's saying. Uh, has a good reputation with the outsiders, is verse 7. Now, we know that people who don't get Jesus will often criticise the church really unfairly. But it seems to basically be saying um, they shouldn't be... Uh, as much as we're up, it's up to us... We need to act in a way where people can't falsely accuse us. They go, this guy is consistent with what he believes. He's not a hypocrite. Now, a couple of the distinct things that are in the passage. Verse 2, have a look at it. It says, now an overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Literally what it says there is that to be a man, uh, specifically a one-woman man. A man of one woman is what it says in Greek. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean they're married, but it does say if they're they're going to be married, they need to be faithful. They're a one-woman man. Yeah, they're faithful to their their spouse. Um, But it does assist that it's a male role, the elder pastor-overseer teacher role. Um, There's a crucial... Here's a crucial principle for overseers, talking about the household of God thing, though. Have a look at verses 4 to 5. It says about the overseer, if you're going to be up to this job you must manage your own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do it in a manner worthy of full respect. For verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Remember on the screen here, uh, folks, that's the wrong slide there. Um, Household of God. It's made up of lots of households. What it's saying is, men, you're the pastor of your household. Read Ephesians 5 sometime. God calls you, to take the lead in your household in leading your wife if you have one and your children if you have them as disciples of Jesus. So the logic of the passage is if you can do that at home and you do that rightly at home at your household level then you might be suitable to be appointed to be an elder, pastor overseer, teacher, the pastor over the household of God. But you can't do the, the big thing, you can't have a pastor who is an awful father. You can't have a pastor who is an awful husband. It's a contradiction in terms. Because if they can't manage their own household well, how can they manage God's household well, is what it's saying. Blokes, I just want to say uh, some questions we need to reflect on. How well are you going leading your families as disciples of Jesus or your households as disciples of Jesus? We need to think about that regularly. Here's one that I think cuts to it more straightforwardly. How are you going deliberately expending yourselves, managing and leading your family? How much time and energy do you pour into the home? Or is it all poured into your work? That's the kind of question we need to be asking as we lead our, our families as disciples of Jesus, as, as it says here. Now, the other thing that the elder uh, pastor overseer teacher needs to be able to do uh, is be able to teach. He mentions it at the end of verse two. They must be able to teach. Um, all pastors are teaching in some form. You can't be a pastor without being a teacher. Doesn't mean you have to be a preacher, though. Preaching is a particular form of teaching, uh, but you've got to be able to teach the people of God to be a pastor. Now, deacons, uh, from verse 8. If you think it's complicated so far... I had a migraine yesterday, and I think it's because I'm trying to work out this bit about deacons. I'm half serious about that. Um, People can mean different things with the same word, Okay? We need to be really comfortable without that. Now, it is a mistake to think that the word deacon always refers to a specific office in the church because it almost never means that in the Bible. Almost never. Sometimes it does, as in this passage, but most of the time it just means servant. And so let me read Mark 10 to you again, literally. Whoever wants to be great among you must first be your deacon. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all because the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but the Son of Man came to do some deaconing. It's in some service. It's the same word, very common word. The Apostle Paul calls himself a deacon in heaps of passages. His friends, his colleagues in ministry are called deacons. It just means servants. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Um, and verse 6, it says to Timothy, look, if you point out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Literally, it just says, you will be a good deacon. It's just the word servant, right? Used very generically, it can refer to almost any form of service. The difficulty comes when you try and work out, sometimes they use the word to talk about a specific church office. So people will point to the one on the screen, um, Paul and Timothy again, uh, these guys t- together writing a letter this time, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, a church there, together with the overseers and deacons. And you go, well, it's, deacons aren't just everybody there because he's specifying a group. The overseers, the, the, the fulfilling that role, and there's deacons, whatever they do. Honestly, I don't know what they do. As best as I can work out, here it is. A deacon is any kind of appointed and recognised service role in the church community that isn't the elder pastor overseer, teacher role. It's just any role that's appointed and recognised to serve. I think it's very versatile. So I think if we we had the Apostle Paul here, and said, hey, Paul, tell us what the, the job list is for a deacon. I think what he'd do is he'd look at us a bit strangely and he'd go dude, the word means, he'd say dude, just so you know. Um, He'd say, dude, the word means servant. What needs do you have around here? If it's a really important need, appoint somebody to officially be the servant of fulfilling that need and recognise them in the church community. I think that's how it's working, as far as I can tell. They're appointing them, recognising them to fulfil a particular need in the church community. Um, And so verse 10, you don't just appoint anybody. They must first be tested And then it doesn't say how to test them. It just says you to assess them. Um, And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. uh, It literally just says let them do some deaconing. Let them engage in their ministry. Um, Have a look at verse 9. It's very important for you to realise deacon isn't a teaching role, but it is a right-believing role, and this is very important. Look at what it says in verse 9. Deacons, these servant people, must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Friends, sometimes I think it's very easy to have in your head there's belief doctrine-y people and there's doer people. And we don't expect the doer people to believe stuff really deeply. Have a look what verse 9 says. They must hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must know and believe the deep truths of the faith. Uh, you can't be a practical person, a recognised servant in Christ's church, without knowing your doctrine. That's what he's saying. You've got to know what you believe, what the Bible's on about. Now, here's the bit that gave me a headache. Um, what about deaconesses? Um, have people been in church um, communities? We had deaconesses as an official job title, a role that was was called that officially. Yep. Um, it's it's very difficult this passage because it seems that the deacons in this passage are men. In fact, it's very straightforward. Have a look at verse twelve. It says the same thing as these guys as about the uh, the uh, overseers. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. It says. A deacon must be a one-woman man, literally. It says the same thing again. Uh, verse 11, some people take that as deaconesses. In the same way, the women, or the wives, are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And some people argue very strongly that's deaconesses. I'm, I don't find it convincing at all, um, that reading of it. I don't think it flows at all like that. And grammatically and linguistically in Greek, it doesn't work. Um, what it says is, in the same way, the wives. I think it's talking about the wives of deacons. And you see how that whole section's about deacons and in the middle it says the wives and then it goes back to deacons again? See, I, I, I think that's what, how it's working. It seems fairly straightforward in Greek. Um, and so you go, oh, so it's just men and deacons as well. Uh, slow down. <laughs> um, Deaconess is actually a traditional title-like bishop. In fact, it's almost as old as bishop. Um, The first reference to it that we have in history is actually a letter from a Roman governor to the emperor in 112 AD. So there's no deaconesses by that office title in the Bible. However, go to Romans chapter uh, 16. Stuart pointed this out to me on on Monday. uh, Important reference. And we're going to read about a woman called Phoebe who's called a deacon. It's very important to recognise this. Now, remember, deacon means servant. In what sense is she a deacon? Is this a church office thing? It's really defined instruction? Or is it some kind of service role that's officially recognised by the church or just means just mean servant generically? Like, there's, there's a whole spectrum of meaning you can have. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kencray. Kencray is seven kilometres away from Corinth. It has a population of 230 people, and it looks like a good holiday destination. Um, I'm talking about today. Um, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the uh, the benefactor of many people, including me. Paul is saying, you've got to respect this lady Phoebe and you need to receive her well because she is a faithful servant of Jesus and she has done some important work in his church at at Kencray. In fact, she's been of great benefit to me. It doesn't say deaconess. it says deacon. it says the masculine word. Um, I, don't know, I don't think it means a job title like we'd give job titles to people these days. I think what it's saying is Phoebe had a recognised prominent role in serving the particular church community uh, in Kencray. Now, it sounds like it contradicts 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this is very, very difficult. Um... If you read the New Testament broadly, it is full of women doing ministry. In fact, just go down to uh, verse uh, 12 there of, of Romans 16. It says, Greet Trophena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. So there's these women engaging in ministry, serving. Uh, Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Uh, you might use the word deacon in one sense of them because they're servants of Jesus. All, serve, all, all followers of Jesus are servants. They're all deacons in one sense. But coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it seems like he has a job in mind that is restricted to men and I don't have a clue what it is. Full honesty, I don't have a clue what it is. It's a recognised role in the church but judging from the rest of the New Testament, there are deaconish roles that women are to engage in the church community in the expectation that they'll do that. So, as you can see, what I'm trying to say is too subtle for a sermon. Uh, My observation is basically... The elder pastor-overseer teacher role is resti- restricted to qualified men. Um, in this passage, there's some sort of specific deacon role that's for men as well. I don't know what it is. So even if I say, let's do that here, I don't know how to do it because I don't know what job he's trying to restrict. But what I will say is, as I read the New Testament, I see women engaging in all sorts of types of ministry that are servant-deacon ministries of, of, of various types. And so we're going to encourage women to engage in those types of roles at our church. Um, the other thing we need to add to it, there is an overall pattern throughout the New Testament of men being called to lead their households, um, and that needs to express itself in the household of God as a general pattern, um, and, and that's what the older pastor overseer teacher role is about. Now, oh, good, sorry I've got my, here's some application to finish up, um, Friends, we hold a very high standard here of Christian conduct for, well, when I say we do, we must, we, we need to. I, I'm not going to say we do now. I think we do. We need to. We must hold a high standard of Christian conduct for all partners and all Christians because all of us are followers of the Lord Jesus and he has high standards. Uh, the passage here is normal Christian conduct. And Stuart and I want to say we do expect these kind of characteristics, outward conduct, to characterize partners at New Life Anglican Church. It's part of what it's about, recognizing Christians who are following Jesus enthusiastically. Um, We need to, as I was saying, distinguish the elder pastor-overseer teacher roles from other roles in the life of our church. Um, What's that look like? Well, go to our original slide here. Um, You just go through them. Bishop is definitely an elder pastor-overseer teacher role. It's the oversight of churches at a high level, exercising authority and appointing church leaders. Uh, Presbyter is also that kind of role. Uh, It's leading the church, uh, the household of God at that level. Deacon is more complicated, the thing we call deacon. We rightly, in the Anglican Church, ordain women to the, uh, the title of deacon to engage in various forms of ministry. However, when you say, should women be ordained, it depends what ministry they're being ordained to. Um, we, uh, I have a number of friends who graduated more college and were ordained to various ministries um, in churches around Sydney. They're currently teaching and discipling women and children and doing an awesome job of it. Uh, and I have much to gain from their wisdom and experience, frankly. Uh, some of them, are, yeah, they have a lot to contribute, much like Phoebe, as we read in, in Romans chapter 16. So it's, it's more complicated for deacons. You go through wardens. Wardens, men and women, it's a deacon-type role. Parish council, deacon-type role. Leading kids, I'd say it's a deacon-type role. It's a servant role. Um, same with music, new life partners. Well, we're all deacons in one sense. We're all servants of Jesus, and we should expect this of each other. So it's basically the principle is distinguish the elder pastor, oversee teacher roles from other roles and, and apply that to your church. And lastly, here's the main thing it's all about. We need to consider carefully how you personally and we together can serve Jesus better because that's what it's about. It's about the household of God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth, being that to their local community. And how we appoint people to roles is just a small part of that. It's an important part, but it's a small part. How we uh, love each other and how we reach those uh, outsiders is, is where it's at. It's what Paul wants to see happen in Ephesus and it's what God wants to see happen in Oran Park. So let's consider carefully how we personally and we together can serve Jesus better. Uh, how about I pray that we'd be good at that. I'm sure you'll have questions from this particular sermon, which is good, and you'll have a Karen and Connect card to write those on in a minute, but let me pray for us. Um, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you saw fit to send your son to become a human being of the same species that we are. Thank you that he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit when he was resurrected from the dead and seen to be in the right and the Lord of all things, the rightful Lord. Thank you he was seen by messengers preached among the nations, including Australia, including Orrin Park. Thank you that we have had the opportunity to believe on him and receive eternal life. Thank you that he was taken up in glory and that he's the Lord of all things. And thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to see people appointed to various types of ministry in your church, which is so very precious to you. Please help those of us who exercise any kind of leadership or any kind of ministry to do it in love, to do it very, very capably, and above all, to do it in a way that brings honour to the Lord Jesus. Amen.